This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. We overreacted uh, during the crack epidemic and uh, we stopped letting judges be judges. The impact of crime affects many aspects of society. You start with what have we decided to criminalize? What behavior do we now think is so serious that we should take away someone's life, liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness? Getting tough on crime has other consequences. The price that we've paid for being a more punitive society, being tougher on crime, is that maybe we're not quite as intelligent on crime. Reform of the criminal justice system, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. There are approximately 2.1 million people in jails and prisons in the United States. 95% of those who are incarcerated will someday return to their communities. The Iowa Criminal Justice Summit was held on October 1st in Cedar Falls to address what are termed systemic problems with the criminal justice system in our country. National speakers representing both sides of the political spectrum came to Iowa to discuss the topic with representatives from all three branches of state government and a local audience. This week, part one of our two-part series on this issue, Later, we'll hear from a University of Northern Iowa criminology professor who worked in the field as a probation and parole officer, and from a reporter who covers the topic here in Iowa. First, the keynote session at the Iowa Criminal Justice Summit was a joint presentation by Democratic activist Van Jones and Mark Holden, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of Coke Industries, the two could probably not be farther apart on the political spectrum, but they did agree on many aspects of criminal justice reform. I spoke with each of them separately prior to the joint presentation. We overreacted uh, during the crack epidemic, and uh, we stopped letting judges be judges uh, with these mandatory minimums. Van Jones, founder of DreamCore Unlimited. Uh, we said, you know, judges can't judge anymore. We're going to tell you, no matter what, the sentence you have to give out. Correction, stop correcting. Um, and now we have a big mess where you have people who are doing long uh, amounts of time, costing the taxpayer a ton of money, coming out with no skills, damage, and then not able to, to participate as voters, as workers. Uh, it's a disaster. And so we've got to back off these mandatory minimums and let judges judge again. Uh, if somebody has a small amount of illegal drugs on them, uh, it's not the quantity of the drugs that should ultimately determine, uh, it's the context. Uh, was this person uh, a part of an operation where they're trying to sell these drugs? Were they, are they an addict? Uh, was their boyfriend beating them up and making them do it? Those things should matter to our system again. There are obviously societal issues that feed into some of this that also need to be addressed. How will fixing the criminal justice system work its way back, in other words, to help some of those other issues? Because obviously this is not a be-all and end-all what you're talking about. No, but the thing is that um, uh, obviously uh, the criminal justice system is a part of a bigger system. But you think about it. You take some young person who makes a mistake. They're 19 years old. They get caught with drugs. You give them a 10-year prison sentence. Well, sometimes a young person is also a young parent. What's going to happen to those 
children in those 10 years. Probably not that much good. Now you've got to deal with those kids, their problems. Uh, are they on welfare? Are they getting themselves in trouble? And you're snowballing a problem as opposed to saying, um, as we do, frankly, with wealthy kids, when they get in trouble, let's send you not to prison, let's send you to rehab. Let's figure out a way to help you. We live in a society where um, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. But what we agree on with the left, look, we look at the criminal justice system at Coke, we look at it in a holistic manner, similar to how you look at anything in a business or any process. Senior Vice President and General Counsel of Coke Industries, Mark Holden. And if you look at why our system is kind of out of whack, so to speak, to, to be kind, you start with what have we decided to criminalize? What behavior do we now think is so serious that we should take away someone's life, liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness? And in a free society, typically, the response should be the least amount of force required to get someone to comply with something that is serious enough that we think will enhance public safety. I'm not an advocate of advocating uh, legalizing drugs, but the reality is that in at least four states it is legal, and people are, you know, marijuana at least is, so we need to rethink that. And again, that's up to Congress to do, but should we, even if you don't want to legalize it, should we be criminalizing it to the extent people get felony records? Uh, because the reality is that's what we do now. And if you get a felony record in this country, it really it limits your ability to partake in American life. So What's the response from your viewpoint to those who say you're just being soft on crime? If you want to get crime statistics down, sure, be more lenient, but that's not the end goal. The reality is that tough on crime, soft on crime are empty political slogans. The reality is we want to be soft on taxpayers and smart on crime. Violent criminals need to be dealt with in a very serious way. But again, going back to what we're supposed to do in a free society, one as great as ours, and I think our country is phenomenal, the greatest in history. I think our justice system is a, in its ideals, is a beacon for the rest of the world, but we're not living up to that with some of the things we're doing. The reality is that what we're talking about, people who use drugs, yeah, well, that, is that a crime or is it a public health issue? Is it a, an addiction issue? Is it because you can't get a job in your community issue, so you turn to that? There's a lot of different reasons people do these things. The statistics have shown that just throwing people in jail and locking them up for long times doesn't necessarily reduce crime rates. There's a big debate about that. Trish Mahaffey has covered crime and courts at newspapers for nearly two decades. She has been at the Gazette in Cedar Rapids since 2008. Based upon your reporting and your contacts with people who are regularly involved in the criminal justice system, is there a sense that the system as currently set up is unduly or improperly punishing those who commit nonviolent offenses? It seems from talking, to, I mean, especially you know, the defense attorneys, they're always, you know, asking uh, the court to, to consider that this, you know, like if it was a drug offense, and if it's a lower, like a marijuana or something along those lines, you know, to asking for a lesser time, they're saying that, you know, that it, the punishment is too high. Um, they're always talking about the mandatory minimums, of course, being too high. And, uh, you know, Judge Bennett in the, in the Northern District, who's out of Sioux City, has always said that he's always been against the mandatory minimums on the nonviolent uh, offenses. He's been a big proponent of that. So you even have the judges who say 
they are not in favor of some of these mandatory sentences, but they can't do anything about it because that's the system Congress has put in place in the federal system. Right, yeah, they have absolutely no discretion when it comes to that. So, and, you know, Judge Bennett has said that many times in, in, you know, different rulings. I've heard him, you know, over the number of years. He always tells the defendant that there's really nothing else he can do. He's, you know, under, he has no discretion in this, but if it was up to him, he would not give the mandatory minimum. You know, it would be, it would depend on the case, too. Because, you know, like, uh, and the prosecutors even aren't even trying to necessarily go after uh, so much the the marijuana crimes or something like that, unless they're like a big, you know, conspiracy. Like, uh, there was one that went from, like, 2011 to 2013. It was kind of a large-scale marijuana conspiracy. And they kind of, they actually charged, like, 12 people in that. And even, but even those, you know, they got the lower, I think the most anybody got was, like, two years. So in a situation where you have determinate sentencing, where it is mandated, there is no judicial discretion, do we see a lot of prosecutorial discretion in terms of either the number of charges they file or how many they are requiring to be included in any sort of plea agreement to sort of compensate for that lack of judicial sentencing discretion? I think so. I mean, it seems to be they have they have come around and started doing that. Mostly, what they're focused on, it seems like now they're trying to go after the bigger the bigger people in in the trafficking, you know, like the the people you know involved with the heroin, that uh, the ones that are you know they're either mixing it with something else or if or if just the you know the purity of the heroin is so high that it's actually you know leading to overdoses and deaths. And I think that's what they're they're focusing more on. And the lower ones, it seems like they've come down and they're really doing pretty well trying to trying to give them pretty reasonable plea deals. I know with my work with prosecutors over time and law enforcement officers, there's often an uneasy tension between the two because the officers sometimes feel they have to write as many charges up as possible because they're afraid that the prosecutor so that there's judicial economy, will drop so many of the charges. Have you, in your reporting or your contacts, sensed any tension between the line officers who are making the arrests and the prosecutors with regard to what actually makes it through the system and what people ultimately either plead guilty to or are convicted of? Sometimes you see that, but not so much. It doesn't seem like... um especially in recent times, and a lot of, you know, in this area, I don't know, you know, I'm talking about the eastern side of the state, uh, it seems to be that the the officers and the prosecutors try to work pretty closely together, and uh, they kind of let the prosecutors make those those decisions. Uh, I mean, I know that doesn't follow in in some of the counties, but uh, it doesn't seem like there's too much of that. If it's anything, I mean, it is... It is always the officers maybe wanting to charge something, but when the prosecutor gets it, you know, they're going to say they can't prove that and they drop it down. So I don't see so much of that. Crime and courts reporter Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette. She spoke to me from Cedar Rapids. Coming up, we'll examine the issue through the eyes of a criminologist. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa State Bar Association. 
The Iowa State Bar Association helps Iowans understand the law by providing free legal resources, brochures, and videos, all found on their website, www.iowabar.org. Learn what questions you should be asking at iowabar.org. Support also comes from KCRG-TV and The Gazette in Cedar Rapids. The program is produced in the studios of KXEL Radio in Waterloo. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. We'll continue our discussion of criminal justice reform in a moment. But first, a final reminder. This coming Thursday, October 22nd, the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism is holding a fundraiser. Hosted at the home of Iowa Watch board member Bob Walker and his wife Christy in Iowa City. There will be a silent auction, catered wood-fired pizza, and live music. Learn more and get a sneak peek of auction items by going to our website, iowawatch.org. We continue the discussion now with a conversation with Dr. Joe Gorton. Dr. Gorton is an associate professor of sociology, anthropology, and criminology at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. We spoke earlier this week. When people talk about reform of the criminal justice system, particularly with regard to the types of crimes that we codify and then impute a sentence of some significant degree toward. What's the biggest problem that we're facing? What's the biggest challenge in terms of the system that needs to be reformed? I would say the largest problem is that most people who are not daily involved in the criminal justice system as practitioners or policymakers or social scientists really don't have a really strong understanding of the depth of complexity. Mostly what happens is we watch, you know, 48 hours or four, whatever those programs, and I watch them too, and we watch those, and we get a pretty simplistic, superficial understanding. Crime is committed, person is arrested, goes to court, they're guilty or innocent, they get convicted, and it just works like that over and over and over again. But the criminal justice system is full of complexity. It might be perhaps the most complex social institution in society. So the idea that everything is wrapped up in a neat bow in one hour, so superficial, and the treatment of these issues in these shows becomes by nature, by necessity, so superficial, it really creates an inaccurate view of the overall system to where people not only are not informed, but they become ill-informed. You're really correct. I think it creates a very distorted view, so distorted, in fact, that it causes us to think of the criminal justice process, as you will, if you will, as a system. And really, in many respects, if you think of what a system is, where you have kind of logically integrated parts that are working well together to achieve uh, a functional outcome, the criminal justice system doesn't operate very well as a system, I'm sorry to say. You know, most of the integration is problematic. 
the struggle for resources is difficult, the politicalization of what happens in, in criminal justice work uh, is acute. And so we really don't have in American criminal justice a, a, a structure and process that really operates in a way that I think a lot of people would, would see as systematic. Describe for us the distinction, which you have talked about and is important, the distinction between racism within, again, a system, right. and disparate impact upon one racial group. Because often people use these phrases interchangeably, these terms, and they're not. Right. Well, first of all, I think everyone familiar with, with, with crime and punishment in America, people, anyone who's taking a, a careful look at these issues knows that uh, the way the criminal justice processes operate in policing and courts and corrections has uh, clearly a disparate impact upon African Americans. So, for instance, in Iowa, um, I believe about 24% of our population, uh, prison population, is African American, whereas about 2% of Iowa's population at large is African American. So that means African Americans are 12 times more likely to be found in prison than they are to be found in the civil society uh, with, within the state of Iowa. So that's a tremendous uh, disparate impact, all right? And we, we see these kind of disparities throughout the country. Now, when we look at this, especially, I think, given the, uh, the history of, of, uh, of institutionalized and state-sponsored racism in America, we look at that and, and the impulse of many people is to say right away, well, this is part of a, of a racist project to oppress African Americans. And it's understandable that people could come to that conclusion. But I think what we do as social scientists is, is, is we step back and we say, well, what do we mean by racism? You know, in science, uh, we don't have the privilege of just throwing around terms uh, uh, loosely. We have to carefully define our terms because we use them in a variety of uh, uh, purposes for theory building and such. So I think with racism, uh, it's a term that we have to distinguish from bias, right? Uh, and even biases, some biases are justified and some are not. But if we define racism as uh, an intentional effort to marginalize or oppress a person or a people because you find them inferior, because the racist finds them inferior, again, an intentional project to marginalize or oppress someone that we find inferior, I think a person would have a hard time making the case that that's what's going on in American criminal justice. You know, instead, what a lot of people will, would argue, myself included, is that African Americans are overrepresented in the criminal justice system because they're also overrepresented in economic and uh, demographic conditions that are, that are deeply criminogenic. And the representation within those, within those criminogenic conditions, so economic impoverishment, high rates of inequality, uh, uh, population overcrowding, uh, population density, uh, inadequate school systems within those low-income areas. Now, all of those things are certainly the product of, of, of institutionalized racism that come out of slavery and Jim Crow. But that's different than to say that the contemporary project of, of law enforcement, adjudication, and punishment of criminal offenders is uh, similarly racist. So as I always say to my students, if, if tomorrow 
all of the people who are of African-American descent in the, in the city of Chicago, say South Chicago, for instance, which is uh, heavily African-American, let's say all those folks disappeared. And they were replaced by left-handed Croatians. Guess what? The crime rate in Chicago among left-handed Croatians would go up dramatically, all right, because they'd be living under these criminogenic conditions. And so what, what happens in, under those arrangements is, you know, a body drops, the police have to respond. They have to find the person who did the killing. People are involved in, in a, a sophisticated drug trafficking operations uh, because they're locked out of the conventional economy uh, that provides real opportunities in life. In, until drugs are legalized, police are going to respond to that. Uh, gangs are going to fight with one another. They're going to do those things. You know, I think we just have to be careful. Now, does that create a, a bias? Well, it is a bias. But it's a bias that, to a large extent, is produced by these criminogenic conditions that exist that I really believe we have to do a much better job at ameliorating. Criminology professor Dr. Joe Gorton of the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. And that brings to a close this week's program. Next week, we continue our look at criminal justice and sentencing in Iowa. New legislation has been introduced in Congress on the topic, and among our guests will be U.S. Senator Charles Grassley, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, and former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick. Criminal justice reform, our topic again next week. In the meantime, you can connect with us online anytime, iowawatch.org. Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again for a list of stations that carry the program and more, iowawatch.org. Follow us on Twitter at Iowa Watch and be sure to use the hashtag IAWatchConnection when commenting about the program. We're on Facebook, too, facebook.com slash iowawatch. And you can let us know your thoughts about this program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.